This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Hi everyone, welcome to Where East Meets West. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. Gives me great pleasure to be partnering with Epilogue and of course, your favorite podcast, American Meditating Radio. You know, life has a way of twisting and turning for us. We go up, we go down, we go in and we go out. Where do we end up? At the end of the day, what is it all about? Why are we here? Sometimes life seems so spectacular and then sometimes it shrinks into a little pea and you find yourself asking questions that you've never asked before. Who am I? Why am I here? How do I make this purpose of this life of mine of great meaning where it communicates something that uplifts humanity? This show is all about that. It's about having conversations with individuals that are making a difference in whatever way, shape and form. But especially about Indian Americans, Indians outside of India who have made a considerable contribution to the world. Why? I think that there's something so meaningful and deep just in the backbone and the culture of a soul in the body of an India. I'm not saying that if you're in an African-American body or a Caucasian body, you're no less, you are. But in specific, I have found in my observation that there's just something very unique about the way Indians show up outside of India. My special guest today, Sheetal Sheth, is an acclaimed actress, producer, author, and activist. She's known for her provocative performances in a wide range of memorable roles of film and in television. She has starred in over 20 featured films and, well, I guess, many TV shows and has earned a loyal international following. Sheetal has become a favorite in the independent film world, having won five Best Actress Awards on the festival circuit and has been selected to represent such brands as Chi, Hair Care and Reebok. But despite being told that she have to change her name to work in the industry. Her successful career has trailblazed paths for other women of color across the media. She has delivered talks and keynotes at festivals and charity galas and has actually had op-eds um, published in CNN, The Daily Beast, and then Thrive Global. She's one of the founders of a nonprofit, 1001 Diverse Books. She served in President Clinton's AmeriCorps and is currently on the advisory board of Equality Now gives you an idea of who we're about to talk to, doesn't it? She's also the author of the popular and award-winning Anjali Children's book, which I can't wait to hear her tell me more about it. It's the first and only in this age group of featuring an Indian American girl hero. Sounds like it should be a movie, Shito. Shito, welcome to Where East Meets West, and we're so happy that you're with us today. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to meet you. You know, one of the things that I love about when we end up in America is how busy we become and how <laughs> <laughs> there's this feeling like the, the world is your oyster. There's nothing that can stop you. And then they tell you, you got to change your name. You know, like, what is. <laughs> yeah. What yeah, was it like uh, growing it up here? <laughs> it is, you know, <laughs> it is interesting. You know, you grow up. I mean, I was aware that, you know, I grew up in a small town, so I was aware that I was different very young. And I was aware that by choice, I felt like I needed to kind of be two different people at different times and hide parts of me in different areas and be more of me in some area, you know, as as you're kind of 
figuring out who you are and your coming of age. But I do think when I went to college, I went to college, I went to Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, which is a one of the best acting schools in America. Um, I was so happy to be there and did everything that you're supposed to do and and was a great student, but lived a little bit of, in a bubble. And when I got out and kind of dipped my toe into the industry, I was not prepared. <laughs> I I really... I really was naive. And I, and I say very, very sincerely that I was very surprised. I'm not anymore. I'm not surprised anymore about anything. I'm shocked about things, but I'm not surprised because I've seen it all. But I started out in an industry when Brown was not cool, unlike what it is now, back in the 90s. And there was no outlet for conversations like we're having right now that you see in the zeitgeist. And so, yes, when I started meeting with representatives and casting directors and agents, the amount of times people kept suggesting very firmly that I needed to change my name really threw me off. You know, I mean, I didn't and I lost many jobs because I refused to, but it was it, a very um, like it, it really woke my, uh, opened my eyes to what was to come my way. <laughs> I'm sure it industry. did. I'm glad you didn't because I do know how I feel when I call call centers, like when I'm calling maybe the credit card company or the phone company and somebody with a very strong Indian accent says, hi, this is Joe. Yeah. And I just don't know how to connect. And I wonder how he feels when he has to do that. But, you know, that's how life unfolds, isn't it? And the fact that you kept you know, your identity in terms of that, of course, that was revealing some strengths that you might be using in the future that you didn't even know. For every individual that has entered the entertainment industry, everyone is naive at the beginning. And what an industry it is. What did you learn the most from it when you look back at the years now? What did you learn the most about yourself? Well, I wish I would have trusted myself more. and. When I think back to thankfully very long time in this career as someone who's been working for over two decades in it, yes, has it been hard? The hardest hard. Like I can't even, I have so many stories and so many things that have, that I've experienced that and ups and downs, but part of what hurts my heart the most is that I didn't trust myself. I didn't listen to that voice so many times when I knew better, I knew better, I knew better, I knew better. And, and there was a number of things when I look back that I'm like, ah, if I had just, if I had just, if I had just, you know, but I will say that um, as much as I am obviously growing and learning every day, I'm more confident than ever. And I have learned that I deserve to be where I am. Um, I know that I have a very unique voice that only I can bring to the table and with all of my experiences and always feeling like, do I belong here? I'm like, and I've met the people who are in charge. We belong here. We are more than capable of being in the rooms that we're in and doing what we do. Let's look at us today and look at the impact the 1% of Indians are making in the United States alone, my dear. Mm -hmm. yes. It's no joke, right? So I know how you feel, you know, that feeling of feeling different. You know, me being half Indian, half African and raised here is no joke, but it's always a very unique experience when I actually go back to India 
<laughs> where I feel really different. Mm. And when they look at me with those eyes, you know how sometimes you get scanned up and down. Yeah. And oh, then, know. you know, that's such a weird feeling. And it's like they go, mm-hmm, Om Shanti, I see you. And you're like, no, that's really not me. That's not me. That energy does something to you. And I'm sure that growing up and being different, you felt that energy a lot. Did you remember what you did to combat that and to keep coming forward with your confidence and conviction and faith and trust in what you think you're called to do? You know, I, when I look back to the kid that I was younger and when I hear, I'm still friends with a lot of people that I grew up with. And so when they describe me, it's not how I felt. And it's not how I experienced, you know, how we experience what's happening and then how people see what they think is happening and their experience of it They're all, are all very different things. And so there are people that would say that I've been strong and confident and outspoken my whole life. I, I don't feel, I didn't feel that when I was younger. I didn't, I always had a very strong sense of fairness and principle and that very much led everything I did since I was a child, since I was four or five, I have memories of feeling of saying this is unfair in many different ways, small and big. And I've always had a very keen sense about that. And that is what drives most of my work. Um, but I didn't feel like I belonged really in any of the groups that I was in because whatever it is that they try to put you into, you know, there are no, but none of us fit into one specific box. We all are so many different things. And I didn't find really anybody that I could talk to about most of the stuff that I wanted to do with my life. There weren't many other people like me that wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't have anyone to look up to at the time when I was starting out, there weren't a lot of people doing this before me. And so it was all new territory. And this idea, you know, you hear people say, if you can't say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I'm like, well, you can, you can create it because I never saw it, but you have to somehow believe that you can, you know, and, and where that comes from, you know, I think is very innate. I think that it's, it's just different people have it in different ways. And for me, I've always had that drive to want more and to push for more and not be afraid to ask. I wonder how many of us walk around in the world feeling that way, like not really belonging, not really wanting to be in a box, but perhaps we just don't have the language or the honesty or the strength or the courage to address that. You know, in our 20s, did we have that courage? (laughs) We were still trying to figure ourselves out, right? And we were trying to fit in with a crowd, but deep down inside, the soul wasn't matching the action or the soul wasn't matching the moment. And I'm just wondering, here you are, fast forward. Are you matching your moments now from deep within? I think in the last few years, more than ever, I was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago. And it took it, and and not to be cliche, but it really does when you're especially this young. And I had very young, I still have young children, but that time my kids were babies. And when you're hit with a cancer diagnosis that early in your life, your mortality it's not that I hadn't thought about it before, but I thought about it in a way that I had never thought of. Like it really, it's something I think about now daily, very much in terms of, I've, I've always been bad at self-care. I've always been bad at setting boundaries. I've always kind of let things go, not saying, you know, I've always, I have become very different 
since um, my cancer diagnosis, primarily in what I do with my time, who I want to spend it with, what I want to put into the world, what work I want to do, what is important to me, what do I want to leave behind? It's something I think about daily. You're struck with a diagnosis such as cancer. It tends to be a very personal, intimate affair. When you tell your family members, you're so concerned that they don't worry about you. What you want more than anything else is for them to be strong with you as you go through this and you charter through the unknown. Am I going to survive or not? Am I going to be able to manage chemo or not? I believe you stayed a little quiet in terms of publicly letting anyone know too much about what you're going through. What did you learn the most during that period? What was one of the biggest highlights that you took away from that? You know, for me, I, I did choose to stay private in the beginning. It was a lot. It was a lot to take in. Um, like I said, my kids were babies and it was a very scary and I was angry time. You know, there was a lot going on. And what I learned is that I could take the time that I needed to actually put myself first for the first time. And there was no like, you know, cause there's people in your life saying, you should tell this person, you should, you know, people want to help. Da, da, da. And I was like, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. You know, I really, I really felt that way. I'm like, I don't need to respond to anybody. I don't need to do, there's so many things I feel when people are sick or are struck with an illness or someone passes away, I do think it's very hard for people to know how to relate, how to talk to you. I, I always joke that I want to write like a how-to guide of how to talk to people that are going through something because most of the time there's a lot of well-intentioned, be strong, things happen for a reason, you'll be fine, which is nothing that you want to hear. It is not helpful. And all you want is to feel what you feel. And so for me, I took permission for the first time in my life to create space for myself and to decide what I wanted to do. And it was hard because I culturally and historically in my life, there's a lot of stuff that was counter to that. And so I really had to set boundaries for myself in a way that I never had. Boy, do I understand what you're saying right now. You know, <laughs> everyone in my family, they keep saying, you've got to take some time. You've got to do that. And I keep going back and forth. Okay, I have what it takes, though, right? Yeah, I can do as much as possible. And then deep down, I wonder, are they right? <laughs> do I really need to take a break? Do I need to really settle in? And mm -hmm. I've got a beautiful life of spiritual you know, guidance and just my whole lifestyle and the way that I roll every day. And yet at the same token, I'm like, do you know how to do self-care? Now, if you tell me to go to the beach in Miami, I'll be like, get me on the first flight out, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then after two days, I call the family, please bring me back home. This is enough. <laughs> this I can't yeah. do any more of this. And so I think really it's the balance of the interior world. It has to do with the way I'm actually envisioning, envisioning who I am at the moment, but also the pull, the pull of a vision that is trying to pull me into my future moments and to try not to allow my past to hold me hostage, to pull me back or to push me back. And it's been very interesting for me to observe when I'm in my moments of stillness. 
and I'm in my meditative mode, you know, and I'm checking that. When you're having your quiet moments, have you ever observed the workings of your interior world and what it's saying to you? Yes. And I try to balance this idea of listening to it and not judging it so that it can just be because it's very hard for me being who I am and how I grew up. And again, culturally, I think there's a lot of this in me of like this, this need for pushing this need for excellence and this need of like even sitting and meditating is, is a challenge for me because I'm like, what am I supposed to be doing with my time? I don't have these 20 minutes and I'm sitting there and usually I get quiet and all of a sudden all the things come into my mind that I need to be doing, you know? And so it's, it's, it has been a challenge for me. I have made it um, one of my goals to just try to do some kind of daily practice for myself, but it is, um, it is a challenge for sure. When in the United States and our first generation, Gujarati, Kemcho, Indian American, <laughs> and while English is your primary language, you're fluent in Gujarati and you've studied Hindi. How have you been able to maintain your cultural heritage with India and why has it been so important to you? Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been very connected to India since I was a kid, more than a lot of people in my life, other family members, other friends who are Indian as well. I, I'm, I'm very connected to parts of India. There's lots of parts of India that I could have, I have no, it, that I want nothing to do with. And I think the need to be completely redone and restructured. But, you know, we went to India a lot when we were a child, which is very common for immigrant families. My parents took us back every couple of years and we would spend three to four months of every year. They would we didn't care if we missed school for a month at a time. And so and I have a very big family. My parents have 14 brothers and sisters between the two of them, lots of cousins, and they're all in India. And so I genuinely loved being there. I actually felt like it was home a lot more than a lot of the other places I was in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, and as I continued to grow and then it was my choice, if I wanted to go, I always wanted to go. I always was happy to go. I went by myself when I was in high school. I actually was on this, you know, I wanted to have answers, especially religiously because my parents are religious. They're Jane. And, you know, they grew up in a way where they never questioned anything. They just did. And they just kind of, you know, had faith and I needed answers. And, and I had a lot of questions that they couldn't answer. And so I went on, I said to them, I said, can I go to India for a summer? I want to study with a guru about Jainism. I want to take classes. I want to, I knew how to speak Gujarati and Hindi, but I wanted to learn how to read and write. So I want to take some classes so I can learn the script. And they said, sure. So I went by myself, stayed with my family and just studied. Um, I left with more questions than I do answers when it comes to, when it came to the spiritual side of things, but in terms of the language and all of that, I was so happy I, I, I did it. And it really is work, I would say, to continue practicing so that it stays top of mind. And I miss India dearly. I have This is the longest stretch that I haven't been because of cancer, kids, and COVID. I have not been able to go, and it's been eight years, but I really hope I'm going to get there to this year. Um, and I miss it terribly. I do feel like something is not quite connected in my life when I haven't been there as long as I had, and I really want to take my kids there. To tell you the COVID, I don't know what it did to me, but I just had to go back to India and smell the masalas, <laughs> smell the earth, 
you know, try to breathe in the smog and know that it wasn't healthy for me, but I didn't care. (laughs) And I just wanted that. I needed it. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that uh, definitely quite soon. So many people achieve a great amount of success and they don't look back. But you support the Asian Americans and other underrepresented groups in their pursuit of careers in the entertainment industry and various humanitarian community outreach programs. Why is reaching back and helping others so, so important to you, Sheetal? I don't know. You know, people ask me this all the time. I don't know how else to be. This is just how I do things like service and community is so innate to me and so important to me. I grew up in a family where community service was daily for us. You know, since I was a child, my parents were big community kind of service people, leaders. They were the founders of one of the very first temples in our town in a very small time in Pennsylvania, which has now grown to thousands of families and is inclusive and has many, many, many faiths under one roof. People come from all over to see it. My dad and a few other people were the ones to create fund it and made this place. And so, and we live five minutes from there. So that was my every weekend. And then I created, you know, youth programs to go along with that. And so I don't know how else to be. It's literally in my bones, it's in my, in my DNA since I was a baby. When in fact, every time I've moved, when I went to New York for school, and then I moved to California, LA, and then I was traveling all over for different movies. And then when I came back to New York, I've been all over if I have not been involved, there's, there's no way I can't be involved with something. I always find a space. Like if I'm shooting somewhere, if I'm going, I'm like, is there a local organization I can get involved in? Is there something I can do? Because I, I don't feel like I can have, I can't go to sleep at night without feeling like that hasn't been part of my day in some way. It's something I think it connects to my innate sense of fairness and equality and knowing how unfair the world is for so many people. And again, what I want to leave in the world. And so if, if there's that little bit that I can do, because I think we all, by the way, should, um, that, that's just, that's just part of my, it's, it's, it's not something I think about that I'm doing. It's just who I am. DNA. Congratulations. And thank you for that. Would you say that you're an empath? Would you say that you feel oh, yes. things a lot? Oh. <laughs> In fact, so much so that it's like so deeply, so deeply to the it's point torturous. where I really have to fight. Yeah, it is torturous. I really do. <laughs> I, if I, I can go down a, a path that is not healthy because I, and I think that's part of, you know, when I think about my cancer and all, you know, who knows why anyone gets cancer, but for me on paper, I was doing all the right things, you know? And so for me, what's the piece that I wasn't good at? Stress. And, and everything I take in and the way I churn and the way that I process, and I really do take so much in, and I'm really trying to find ways to, to manage that better. Sometimes I wonder if it's the influence that we, we're surrounded by in the U.S., um, the ability to take the world over by storm if you want to, if you put hard work into anything, you're going to see the results of that. And then you've got the culture of back home where there's tradition, family, uh, maybe a sense of savor too. You know, there's always savor with your immediate family members that starts off in a get-go. That this whole energy of being in service and to have this savor mentality, can you imagine how much better the world would be? I actually don't think there'd be a lot of poverty 
or illness or violence if we just had this mentality of a little bit more seva. Yeah, seva. You know, it's so interesting you say that. When I was in high school, um, my high school created a new requirement to graduate where everyone had to do 60 hours of community service in order to graduate. 60 hours over four years. Okay, that's not a lot. It's like nothing. But they wanted to, like you said, they wanted seva, they wanted service to be part of a requirement to graduate. Can I tell you the uproar that happened? People sued the school. All kinds of things were happening. People arguing about how these things cannot be mandated. And this is not something you should have to do in high school. And if people want to do it, they should, you know, all the things, all the arguments. And I remember thinking, are we really fighting about service? About And, and, and how, how misguided are we that we haven't had this as part of our life since we were children? Because now we're adults. And we're so far removed from this idea of community and our brothers and sisters and Seva, like we're talking about, that it's become a problem to ask us all 60 hours over four years. I couldn't believe it. And it was a big problem. I remember it was a big thing in our in our community. And I was on the side of, yeah, I think it should be more, frankly. (laughs) But it was a problem for many people. It's amazing where we are inside of ourselves to actually think to give back within four years, just a little bit of you to build your community was a problem. And I think it goes to show the uphill battle that we have, but also the opportunity to be able to stand firm in our principles and our values and our virtues so that we can keep inspiring those that might be a little bit on another course and it's fine. Their course is just different. Yeah, It's fine. It's just different. Um, I was remembering this whole notion of seva and service that it sometimes gets to such a point that you even forget to serve yourself in the midst of trying to fight for the whole world, you know, and you almost find yourself sometimes getting stuck in this energy of giving so much of yourself that you've forgotten to give back to you. We have been through so much in the United States in the last, I don't know, since 9-11, but in particular, the last four or five years has been taken this country into a spin. It has unearthed things that we knew were there, but we had not known how deeply entrenched they were and in what areas they were located. Your award-winning book, Anjali Book Series, tells us a little bit about, you know, these very deep things that have been happening in our culture. And you did it based on a real kind of form person. I loved it. And it's like Pixar. Actually, when I was looking through it, I says this reminds me of Pixar. Pixar is giving messages through animated images and it's softening the adulteration of our minds. As we watch it with innocent eyes, we're beginning to see ourselves and say, yes, I should make this change. Tell us about the book. You know, it all came from once again, when I started out, you know, as an actress and not seeing much representation. And and when I say representation, I mean, thoughtful representation, not the kind of pandered tokenism that I think or performative stuff that we see a lot of the time because the people that are making them are the people that are making those choices. And so when I was expecting my first child, I was reading children's books to figure it out the books I wanted to bring into my home. And I remember having a moment in a bookstore being like, has it not gotten any better? Like these are the same books than when I was a kid. And I was stunned and I was angry. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. 
my kids are not going to grow up the same way I did. They has to be better. It's been 30 some years and there's been no movement. And then I went on a deep dive and sure enough, found that, you know, under 9% of children's literature have people of color at the center of them. There are more books about animals than there are about kids of color. And what I found when it came to South Asian representation is if there were books with brown kids that had to do with anything kind of cultural, it was always religious, mythology. It was like, I was like, do they know that we don't just celebrate Diwali every day? Like we also go to school and play instruments and have dinner with our parents and we have pets and we like our kids, you know, we don't need to kind of perform. And that's what happens. Every book is like, let me teach you about my Manby. Let me teach you about Diwali. Let me show you what holy is, which are all wonderful, beautiful parts of who we are, but it's not the core of who we are. And so I decided I wanted to write a series that normalized us and that actually brought us together in the sense of look at everything we have in common while never ever forgetting who we are and where she comes from and her family is you know from India but her just being a kid and what does it look like being a kid coming from such a strong background but also navigating all those things and so it was very much about centering stories about everyday slice of life and it not being where race was the narrative and so I think, you know, when the books came out, I didn't know what was going to happen. And this is, again, the first and only that exists in this age group. It has done so well. And I think that speaks to this idea of like, yes, people want this. I cannot tell you the amount of messages and emails and just people of all backgrounds that reach out just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like we have never, we want books. We need these books. Not again. And, and, and I also feel like kids are ripe. And they so want to talk about real things. And so the other part of my books is I want them to be fun and accessible, but there's always a layer of something more in them. And depending on how, what age you are, you're going to get different things out of it. So there's layered in lessons depending on your age. And so in Always Anjali, you know, there's, we, we talk about bullying, we talk about racism, we talk about all of those things. In Bravo Anjali, we talk about sexism, misogyny, friendship, again, in different ways, depending on how old you are, you're going to be able to pull those things out. But our kids are dealing with this now and they need tools and ways to process their feelings and telling kids not to feel what they feel and to like be okay and not be upset and be strong is not helpful. And so I very much want kids to feel permission to have whatever feelings they have, have big feelings. Let's talk about them. My goal is let's teach them how to process them and how to get through them so that we can be functioning adults, which I think we see there's a lot of non-functioning adults <laughs> making decisions mm. and in charge who don't know how to process their feelings or communicate or be, yeah. you know, kind of the, the, the emotional social learning side. But you know why? I mean, they come from that older culture when they were not given permission to process their feelings. And it's really our generation that's opening that up a hundred years ago or maybe a few hundred years ago when the candle makers realized that they were going to be out of business when electricity was created. Can you imagine how they felt? Right. Yeah, so yeah. similarly, imagine when we're telling our parents um, a different way of raising our kids, how they'll roll your eyes and go, what do you mean? You're talking about self-care or you need time <laughs> to yourself. And your mother will say, I never had that. And you just look at your mother with empathy and you just say, I know, mom, I know things are just a little different now. And it's hard for them to understand. Um, there's something that you touched on earlier on in our conversation, and I'm loving our time together, by the way. Um, we often feel that we've got some great powers somewhere. You know, the soul has 
some magnificent superpowers. I have a joke to tell you. <laughs> I got ready this morning in the bathroom and for the life of me, I couldn't find my towel. So my mother has a very advanced stage of dementia. So I'm wondering, did she sneak in, take my towel, whatever. So I'm looking outside, I'm looking all of the bathroom, no towel. And I started to feel, because I wrote a book just recently, it was released on mysticism and the power of mysticism and meditation. So I'm looking around and I'm actually, actually, Shito, I'm saying, oh my God, I think I've made my towel disappear. <laughs> my, I'm serious. <laughs> my mystical powers, there's something is... Did I really make this towel disappear? So I've gone to the kitchen and I'm making a cup of tea. Do you know where I found my towel? On my head, covering <laughs> my hair, which goes to show I really need a vacation. Yes. The superpower that I thought I was working from wasn't there. <laughs> now, in the book, Angeli is a girl who comes to understand that being an individual is her superpower what would you say is your superpower? You know, I, I wouldn't be able to kind of crystallize it in one word, but I do think the combination of who, how I grew up, the life that I've lived. I mean, all we can all say that, right? We are who we are because of everything we've lived. But I, and I, but I really do feel like, um, I have, whenever I hear conversations about things in the world, I have always something a little bit different to, to offer to the conversation. And so for me, I think because of all of my experiences, I have a different point of view about things and the way I look at things and the way that I process things. And so for me, I think that my heart and that empathy that I do think at times is overwhelming and, and very hard for me to manage is probably the thing that will serve me the most because I can see, I meet people and I have a very innate sense right away about them. I even see it with my kids' friends. I like knew, I knew them in like pre-K. I'm like, that's going to be that person. That's going to be that. And I've been right as they got older, every single one of them, I, I like the tendencies that they start to show. I can, I can hone in on those things. Say that even when you entered the industry at the beginning, you wish you had followed your gut feeling. Yeah that you just knew intuitively what you should be doing and not doing, but it was all predestined. It's all supposed to happen. What has been one of your most notable and rewarding career achievements? Um, you know, I think I'm most proud of the fact that when I look at my acting trajectory is I've never repeated myself. And every single movie, every TV show, every voice, every job I've done has really been quite different. And I think that's unique. And I'm very proud of that because I have not done the same thing or done the, the character over and over again. I really look to kind of keep learning and trying new things. And I think that shows up when you look back at all of my choices. And I took on topics that no one wanted to talk about when they did. So I've kind of been at the forefront of quote controversy when I don't think it should be controversial, but um, I'm drawn to material that I think um, has other layers to it. And so I'm, I'm quite proud of the narrative that I've pushed forward. What's the best advice that you've received so far? For me, the balance, the work-life balance is what, like when I say I struggle with them, I'm struggling with the most. And so I, really it's helped me 
schedule my time, the time for my work, and then my time with my family. And I have very strong rules when I'm with my kids. Like I don't bring my phone. We're not there. Like I am, I try, I want to be present with them when I'm with them. And I do feel like it's flying by in a flash. And I, I want to take every moment. I feel very lucky actually during COVID that they were at ages where it was hard and I wanted to tear my hair out most of the time, but I got to know them in a way that I don't think I would ever would have if it wasn't for everyone being home. Beautiful. Is there a message that you'd like to leave our wonderful audience with today? Well, you know, there's a book that I wrote um, when I was going through my cancer treatment, because when I was going through my chemotherapy, I was looking for children's books that I could bring home to talk to my very young children about illness and possible death and whatever it was. And I didn't find any. Everything was abstract. Everything was very metaphorical. And I was like, and when again, I looked into it, everyone's like, well, because we don't want it. We want, we want to talk about like happy things. And I'm like, well, kids go through stuff. Kids have feelings. And if anything, we've seen that we've all been putting our kids through quite a bit the last few years, and we need to talk about these things. And so I wrote the book and it's called making happy. And it's all about making happy in the midst of everything that could be going on. And it's my love letter to anybody who's struggling at any point in their life in any way of their life. And I'm really proud of it. I just actually saw the full illustrated book this week. It's beautiful. The illustrator Kalali is genius and it's going to be out this fall. And I really, when I think about what I want to leave in the world, that is the best example of what I'm trying to say. You know, this idea of like, it's okay to feel what you feel and live your truth and don't apologize for it. Just do you. Well, congratulations and thank you for that. Leave us with the best website where we can find more information. Yes, just mysheeplechef.com is kind of home base where you can then find links to everything I do. <laughs> Sheetal, thank you for being such a breath of fresh air. Thank you for being truthful, authentic, open, straightforward. And thank you for not, I can sense, being afraid of making a mistake and learning from it. I think that's one of the best parts of growing up. But thanks for your contribution and many, many good wishes and unlimited blessings to your kids. And may your future even be 10 times better than it is now. So thank oh, you so thank much you. for joining us today. Yeah? Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I love it. It gives me talking to someone like you gives me peace and I'm always looking for peace. <laughs> uh, anytime. I'm pretty sure we'll stay connected. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you've taken a lot from Sheetal's Chef. As you can see, life is a growing curve, isn't it? No matter what you go through, no matter how your gut feelings will tell you what to do. Aren't you fascinated at how the universe or the destiny has something else inscribed for you? It's like, I know I shouldn't go here, but I'm going anyway. And because of that, it took me somewhere else. It brought something else to me. It brought the people that I have in my life right now. Hey, life is an unending ride. Take it anyway. Stay on it. It has its ups and downs. It's part of the journey. Just don't try to get off too soon. And don't try to beat yourself up too much because you feel like you're not like that person or like that person or you're not fitting in. Sometimes it's okay to not fit in because sometimes maybe you are your own superhero and you've got certain superpowers, but if you keep looking at other people, you will lose your capacity to fly and soar. Look inside of yourself. 
see who you really are meant to be and let those powers from the world behind your eyes come through. Thank you for joining us. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. I suspect we're here to love each other the same. So let's do that. Don't forget to get a copy of my book, Meditation, Intimate Experiences with the Divine through Contemplative Practices on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's been a good read, but also keep in touch with Sheetal Seth. I think you can learn a lot from her books, her story, her narrative, and her presence. Thanks a lot, everyone. Take care and be safe.